did not choose me, he's talking to his disciples, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that'll last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, that y'all love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind that the world hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would have loved you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, though, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant? A servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They'll treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you, and all this Jesus tells you tonight, so that you will not fall away. They, the world, these authorities, they'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will actually think they're doing a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I'm telling you this so that when their time comes, you will remember, remember that I warned you about them. I have told you these things, he says further down in verse 33, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart or look up. I have overcome the world. Let's pray together and we'll take a look at this. Lord Jesus, our hope tonight is that you have overcome the world. We know the world isn't just something out there. It's not an us and them thing. We were all, either are now or were, recently in the past part of the world, part of the opposition to you, rebels to you. And you have not just overcome some, you know, abstract idea of the world. You have overcome worldly people like us with your mercy. So tonight, I have zero confidence in my power and my abilities. I have little confidence in my friends' abilities, but a world of confidence in your ability to overcome, even tonight, the opposition that still resides in our hearts and our minds, Christians in this room, people in the room who don't know what they are, people in the room who know they're not Christians. Show yourself to be sovereign tonight, to choose your people out of the world and bring them to yourself. I pray this in your name. Amen. Over the break, I came across an article that had a title that caught my attention. The title was A Girl Without a Country. And it was a story of Maha Mamo. She's Lebanese. Well, actually, she's not Lebanese, and that's the problem. She was born in Lebanon. Uh, but the problem is, to have citizenship, to be granted citizenship in Lebanon, 
Your father has to be Lebanese. Her father was Syrian. Her mother was too. So I was thinking as I got in just the first paragraphs of this article, well, problem solved. Just cross the border to Syria and apply for citizenship there. But the problem is in Syria, uh, it's illegal for a Muslim to marry a non-Muslim. And Maha's mother was a Christian. Her father was a Muslim, her mother was a Christian. So in the eyes of the state, her parents' marriage was illegal, illegitimate. And any fruit from that marriage, any children from that marriage were barred from citizenship. Born in Lebanon and rejected from Lebanese citizenship. Parents are Syrian and rejected Syrian citizenship. So Maha became what about a million people in the world are called a stateless person. A person with no home, no nation to claim them, no birth certificate, no documents, no passport, no ID, no access to medical care, no legal rights, no one to fight for them, no access to anything. So what does she do? She spent her adult years, she's 30 now, she spent her adult years starting to write embassies in capitals around the world, to London, to Moscow, to, to Madrid, to Washington. And she's writing to these embassies, uh, describing her situation and begging, pleading for a way to become a citizen of that country, to have a state, a homeland, a place, to have access, to have a life. And so um, nobody was accepting her petitions. That No one was even getting back to her until the Syrian civil war broke out 10-ish years ago. And Brazil, uh, to receive Syrian refugees fleeing the violence, created a path to citizenship for Syrians fleeing the violence. She was not a Syrian refugee, but she said, I'm kind of Syrian, and petitioned the Brazilian government. After a lot of arm twisting, they gave her citizenship. She has a TED talk you can look up. It says, I'm 30 years old, and today I got my passport for the first time. She got a birth certificate retroactively at 30 years old. She was finally on the map. She had a birthday. She had a name. She had documents. And all that the documents give you, access to society to life, to a future. That's her story. Now, her new citizenship in Brazil immediately created this culture clash because she looks Syrian. She's the child of Syrian parents. She has a Lebanese accent. She spent most of her life in Lebanon. She's culturally Lebanese, but she's not Lebanese and she's not Syrian. She's Brazilian. She doesn't speak Portuguese. So she starts learning Portuguese, teaching herself this language, and whenever she's talking to friends back in Lebanon or Syria or goes back there, there's this emerging culture clash of, we don't think we know you anymore. She's a free woman now. She's living in a, dem in a democracy. She has rights. She has access to higher education. She's less and less understood back home. And she understands home, or at least where she grew up, less and less. So when I, when I saw the article, the title caught my eye, the story caught my heart. And the reason why is because it has so many parallels with the experience of a Christian in this world. Not in the sense that we are people who are wandering around our whole life, kind of just petitioning God to come, please, let me have a place at the table. Let me be part of your home. Let me be a son or a daughter of you. 
the metaphor is reversed at that point because the Christian experience and the way the Bible describes the good news of Jesus is not that you and I go on some long expedition trying to find a home, but that home, who is Jesus, came looking for you. And without you ever even asking for it, sovereignly accomplished a way in for you, giving you access, giving you rights, giving you freedom, giving you a home, giving you a nation, a community. But the places that we resonate with this uh, is in the culture clash that we experience as these kind of two-state people now. Some kind of a citizenship in America or wherever you're a citizen of, if you're not, didn't, weren't born here, we have this kind of temporary citizenship here. We've got an ID and all this kind of stuff, but Paul says in Philippians 3, you're probably familiar with it, Christian, you're not a citizen here. Your citizenship is supernatural. It's, it's far away from you. It's in heaven with Jesus who is your king, your ruler, your master, your Lord. And your citizenship there, what some people call the citizenship of your heart, of your soul, uh, your citizenship being in him creates problems and complications for your citizenship in America. Or your membership of any movement, any party, any fellowship, any group, any organization, it will create aggravation and tension and culture clash between the culture of his kingdom and this king and the culture of these kingdoms, these authorities, these little fiefdoms where everybody has put their flag in the ground and says, this is mine, and you got to play by my rules to succeed in this little domain that I've made. That's where I saw the parallels to Maha's story, the radical culture clash between the two citizenships that the Christian, Jesus says, has. Really quickly, what's the world that Jesus is talking about? If we had to define that, it comes up a ton. We need to get clear on this before we talk about anything else. What's the world that he's talking about? He's not talking about just the planet. He's talking about, in the way that he uses this term throughout the Gospel of John and his ministry, is anything and everything and anybody and everybody uh, who is not in humble submission to Jesus, their maker, their judge, their Lord. It's more than just people. People, when he says the world, he's talking about people who are in rebellion to Jesus, who have dismissed him, ignored him, uh, pushed back at him, resisted him, denied him. It's that. But it's also the systems and the organizations and the movements and the parties and the ideologies and the philosophies and the industries and the cultural gatekeepers and the societal norms, all of these things that are opposed to God, that are an opposing kingdom, a, competi a competing kingdom to God. That's what John means. That's what Jesus means when he uses words like the world. The world will hate you. He's talking about the world that is opposed to God, that, is opposed to God that, that hates Jesus, that has a disposition, a posture of disdain to God himself. And again, not just people, so much more than that. Even religions is the world that Jesus is talking about. We can say in our moment, even factions within Christianity Cultural Christianity is the world. Nominal Christianity is the world. 
Christian nationalism is the world. It's the darkness that John was talking about in John chapter one when he said, the light who is Jesus has come into the world, into the darkness, the evil, the anti-God forces and powers, and the darkness could not overcome this Jesus. How do I know that even religion, even subsets of Christianity that have warped and corrupted true Christianity, the true gospel. How do I know that that's included in the world that's opposed to God? Jesus says at the very end of the passage, if you look at the last little paragraph down there, um, all this I've told you that you will not fall away. They, who's the they? The people who are about to lynch him, who are rabbis, who are chief priests, who are religious authorities and pastors, they will throw you out they're the gatekeepers. They control who's in and who's out in this little subculture in Jerusalem, in Israel. And he says, they will kick you out of their churches, out of their synagogues, because you don't tell the party line. Why not? Because you're allegiant to me, not to them, not to the ideology, not to their little agendas, but you're allegiant to me. They'll kick you out. And in fact, they're so warped and so deluded in this corrupt understanding of the true gospel of Christianity that they will do it and they'll think they're doing God a favor by persecuting you. So friends, do we have a more nuanced, textured understanding of what the world means? We're not doing culture war stuff here. We're not saying Christians and all the bad people out there who aren't Christians. Every human being is born part of the world, right? Nobody but Jesus Christ was born in a right relationship with God. Everybody was born into the corruption and the rebellion and the deadness of the world that is opposed to God. Jesus told Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, and uh, he said, how do you get out of the dead world that you and I were born into? Jesus says you have to be born again out of it. Nobody in this room was born with a leg up with God. We were born, stillborn spiritually, opposed to God, dislocated from him, alienated from him. We were born homeless, powerless, without access to him, true aliens, foreigners to him, far off. All of us were born that way. In John 3, Jesus says you have to be born again, born a second time into his kingdom. Here, he says, I have chosen you out of the world. Other places in scripture, it's not the word choose, but I have plucked you out of the kingdom of darkness and planted you into the kingdom of light of God's beloved son, Jesus. There's only one way you get out of the world and the death, the corruption, the rebellion that's in it. God plucks you out, out of mercy. Not because you earned it or impressed him or performed, or did the party line or believe the right formula, but because Jesus, who was alive, picked up a little dead person and said, live. We've got to get this before we go on because otherwise some of y'all are going to feel like, man, Jesus is coming in hot. I thought he loved his enemies. I thought John said, for God so loved the world, or Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son to come and save this world. We've got to be clear that everybody in this room was or is a part of the world that is in opposition to God. And the only way you get out of it is by mercy, by grace. So now that that's kind of settled, 
Um, let's get into this. What posture does the world have towards Christians, Christianity, the church, Jesus, whatever you want to say? What's that dynamic? What's in between us and the world, this toxic thing that's ruining everything, that's causing the resistance, the ridicule, everything else? Um, what's the trigger of their hatred, of its opposition? Did we do something? That's another conversation. Of course there's legitimate criticisms of Christians and the church. How much time do you have? Pick a, pick a generation, pick a decade, pick a year, pick a week, and we can talk for a long time. And the Bible talks plenty about legitimate criticisms and condemnations of God's people falling short of what God has called us to be. That's talked about elsewhere. It's not what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is talking about here is the world that I've just defined for you as kind of with one voice being opposed or hating who Jesus is and who God is and thereby hating you because you're associated with him. If he's the vine and you're the branch and the world hates the vine, the world doesn't say, oh, well, you're just a branch. You're just one of Jesus's, uh, you know, uh, transformed people. You get a pass. No, it looks at this vine and branch as one organism and says, I hate it. Jesus is warning his disciples it's going to be hard because that dynamic exists. So how does the hatred manifest? What does it look like? I would have, well, I don't imagine. It's on a spectrum from severe to less severe, more obvious, less obvious. Again, Jesus is about to be crucified by the world, the powers that be, the gatekeepers, the agenda setters. Um, so that's pretty severe, right? He's about to be deprived of his rights, of any justice, of any truth, of any legitimacy in the court system. He's about to be put through that. That's severe. Uh, but it's also less severe stuff. How do you experience the opposition from the world, from anything, anybody, everything, and everybody who is opposed to Jesus and his kingdom? How do you experience their resistance, opposition, ridicule, whatever else? Is it around the Thanksgiving table or the Christmas table at dinner when fill in the blank? I don't know the conservative or the uh, political makeup of your family. Is it the super conservative but not really a Christian grandpa who can't figure out why you have such a problem with what went on this summer and what's been going on hundreds of years prior to that and thinks that you've gone liberal? Is that what the hatred of the world directed at the people of Jesus feels like to you? It does for a lot of people. Is it perhaps your more progressive friends who this summer were all about it when you started posting and getting engaged and speaking up, but as soon as they heard that you also think that we should protect the voiceless, the weak, the powerless, and unborn children, they're done with you. And you're immediately dismissed because you're not allegiant to 100% of the party line and the agenda. Do you taste the vitriol and the ridicule and the dismissal of the world because your allegiance to Jesus transcends every little nook and cranny of the party platform? Do you experience it even less subtle way, or more subtle ways, less obvious ways? Little snickers. Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, cool. You know that? You're, oh, cool. You're just like, I feel like I'm an inch tall now. I've just been put in a box, and who knows what's going through their head right now. Or a professor who makes a little snide comment when you're talking about the origins of the universe. Of course, some people believe that. How do you taste the hatred that the world has 
to the maker and the ruler of this world. Where are you caught in the crossfire as the bullets fly over your head? Right to the heart of God. Where do you get hit by that? Jesus says, in a sense, I guess if you could read between the lines, he says, hey, don't take it personally. Their beef is with me. Um, Their beef is with me. So what's the source of the world's beef with Jesus? Um, What's beneath all this stuff that puts enormous social pressure, relational pressure, emotional and psychological distress on Christians? What's beneath the colder, hotter, more obvious, less obvious forms of hatred? I'm, na- I'm just numbering things, four things. Of course, there's probably more than four, but I saw four. four. Four reasons. Number one, authority issues. What's the world's beef with God? Uh, the world uh, doesn't have room for two kings. You can't have a land with two rulers. One, one person rules, one person reigns, and so the world doesn't have room for two authorities. Uh, think about what happened this week and today. Our, our culture is reaching this crescendo moment of a debate about what is the truth, and more importantly, who gets to tell you the truth? And we're at a cultural moment, too, of individualism where you and I both believe it. I'm a pastor, and I do this. You're a Christian, not a Christian, whatever, and you do this, too, where we think I'm the one who decides what's true and not. I'll listen to your argument, but I'm deciding not just whether I agree with you or not, or, but what, whether what you're saying is true or not. I'm the arbiter. I'm in the judge's seat. Present your case to me. And we do that with God, too. Jesus, present your case to me, and I'll see which parts of it I agree with and which I reject. There's a crisis of truth, a crisis of authority. The world doesn't have room for a king who doesn't say, um, I've come to bring truth, but who says, I am the truth. Not someone who comes alongside all the other teachers, but one who says, I'm above all the teachers. The world doesn't have room for, uh, the world does have room for another like subservient ruler, but not one who says, I'm the Lord of all the lords, the king of all the kings. The world has room for another creature, but the world doesn't have room for a God who says, I'm in charge. This is my world my turf, my air. There's an authority issue. Uh, There's an authority issue that the world kind of sees Jesus as just another teacher among many. Take it or leave it. It's like your food preferences. Do you like sushi? Do you not? Do you like his teaching? Do you not? What parts do you like? Do you not? There's authority issues, and that's the beef that the world has with Jesus. We just, we get so annoyed at hearing the, the authoritative supreme truth claims, the absolutes, this is life, that way is death, this is right, this is wrong. I'm the only way. There's not 15 ways. Yet we bristle. There's allegiance issues too. The the systems of the world demand perfect allegiance. You step outside of that, you're an independent thinker, you deviate from the agenda, and you're punished for it. Um, That happens in Religious circles and non-religious circles. It happens in conservative places and liberal places and moderate places and independent places. It happens everywhere. The world demands perfect obedience and allegiance. The world does not know what to do with people who are inconsistent, who are unpredictable. 
And when you stop carrying water for the world's agenda, it turns on you. When you're the scientist in your little group who says, hey guys, I'm a little concerned because we're scientists and we follow the evidence and the data and we continually adjust our theories as the data comes in. The data is not reaching the conclusion that you're about to publish this paper on to get funding. I'm out. You see how long you last. Um, I couldn't, I'm not trying to make a political comment. I'm trying to observe something I saw on TV last week. I could not miss the irony in this. Do you know what I saw when the riot was going on? Two giant wooden structures. Did you see them? One, um, but they were carried by the crowds and then they were erected at the base of the steps of the Capitol. One was a huge wooden cross. The other was a huge wooden gallows with a noose dangling down. The gallows, it turned out later when they listened to the audio of the crowds, the gallow was for Mike Pence. Hang Mike Pence. Um, from a crowd who probably would have said a year ago or six months ago, he's our guy. He's pursuing our agenda. The second he turns, the gallows is waiting. And the cross, which says the same thing. The second the world looked at Jesus and realized he's not going to do our bidding. He's here for his own agenda. He's here to save sinners, not to bring political power, whatever else. Guess what they did? There's a cross for you, Jesus. Crucify him. Crucify him. We have no need for him anymore. I can't get past that. The world demands perfect allegiance. It even demanded it of Jesus, and he didn't give it. He was allegiant to someone higher. We're called to be that as well. Exposure issues. John 3, 19 says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil and they didn't want to be exposed. Jesus is light and wherever he is and wherever his people are, it brings a degree of light that exposes and sheds light on what's happening. Some of you might live in places where you have all your faults, all your problems, all your sin patterns, but maybe one of them is not passively, aggressively judging your roommates. But uh, you know, they will still feel judged by you simply by the fact that you're associated with Jesus. You don't go out and get drunk every night. You don't bring a girl or a guy back every night, and you never brought it up. You never mentioned it. You never left a note. Hey, please don't do that anymore. You're just doing your thing. They'll feel judged by you. I felt judged by Christian friends in college. I was not a Christian in college. I felt judged every time I was around them, not because they were judging me, but because they were light and it exposed all the crud inside of me that I loved and that I lived on. The last is a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what Christianity really is, and this is kind of the last chunk we end with. Why the opposition to Christians, to Jesus, to God the Father, to the church? There's a fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what Christianity or what the gospel is. Verse 21, Jesus says this, they will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. He says earlier, they didn't know me. It's a misunderstanding, a fundamental misunderstanding that of who Jesus is and what he came to do. I would imagine the world, or at least America, Americans believe that Christianity is some moralistic expedition. If you're a good person who wants to become a better person, Christianity's for you. 
Start going to RUF in 2021 and it'll advance. You'll mature, you'll grow. You'll become a better person. I would guarantee you, most of your friends or you yourself believe that's what Christianity is. That's what the gospel is. And that's not at all what the gospel is. I bet most of the world believes that the Christian God saves good people. And that's not who he saves. He saves bad people. He saves rebels dead in the world. That's who he brings new life to. I bet the world would believe Christianity, or Americans might believe Christianity is for middle class or upper class, um, pretty well-off conservative people. Christianity is for the world. It's for the people of Jesus that he has come to die and lift out of death and save. The world has rejected a savior it never knew. A savior it is misconstrued and misunderstood. And so Christian, if you are a Christian, what is your role? What does Jesus call us to do and why is he doing this? This is what's interesting. What's the context of this? Yes, the crucifixion of Jesus where he will accomplish the resurrection, the grace, the mercy, the forgiveness for his people that he's chosen out of the world. What's the rest of the context? Sending these disciples into the dark world. Not to hate them, not to become Amish and say, it's us and them. We're going to fight a culture war with you. But he's sending his disciples into this dark rebel world to love this dark rebel world. To love it. He's saying, he's saying, I just want to prepare you. This mission, you will get shot. You will take incoming fire. You will be rejected. Your reputation, you might not get a promotion. You might not get published. Your neighbors might never come over and introduce themselves to you because they found out you're a Christian that is not interested in religious people. You will suffer that. So be prepared to persevere and endure and love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you because they're really persecuting me, but Jesus is a savior who saves people who persecute him. Saul, Saul, why have you persecuted me? He says to the apostle before he saves him. Disciples of Jesus, Jesus is sending you and I and has sent us out into the dark world because you and I were all part of the dark world and some of his disciples before you found you and bore witness to him that he doesn't save good people, he saves bad people who've made a wreck of their lives and still aren't where they probably should be. That he's come for the weak and the helpless and the godless and the rebels. That he has the power, he's not asking you to have the power. That he grants faith, that he grants repentance. You get to bear witness to that and the spirit of Jesus through you bears witness. Here's the last story. Some of you know this because it's, there's a lot of movies that have been made about this recently. Um, King Edward VIII was the heir to the crown, I think, for, from King George. I don't know if I have my kings right. This is back in the 1940s or so. Um, king Edward VIII was the heir to the British crown. When his father died, he became king. The problem was that he loved an American woman. And the big problem was that this woman, Wallace Simpson, was a divorcee, which was a double no-no in the British monarchy at the time. So he served as king, he did his duties, he led the realm for I think a few months, maybe a year or so, uh, but soon started to talk to advisors and other family members in the royal family. I don't wanna do this. I'm not a king. 
um, I want to marry her. And they said, you can't marry her. She's American. She's a divorcee. No, that's a deal breaker. You can't do that. And he said, but I love her. And he eventually takes his crown off, abdicates the throne, moves to America, and marries Wallace Simpson. What befuddled and confused and angered everyone in the royal family and everyone in Britain was, how how, how would you give all this stuff up? The power, the influence, the legacy, the reign, all the stuff, the title of king. You're going to give it all away for her? An American? A divorcee? You're going to give it all up for her? Do you know, that episode shows a lot. Do you know what it shows supremely, though? Boy, he must have loved her. They told him, you're about to lose everything. And he said, no, no, no. I've gained everything I ever wanted because I love her. I didn't ever love this stuff. Friends, when you begin to wake up to how Jesus Christ loves you, And if you don't know him, when you begin to wake up to how Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, loves people stuck and dead in the rebellious world, when you begin to wake up to that and he gives you eyes to see him, a love begins to develop in your heart that does not make sense to the world or your parents or whoever. And they see you rejecting all the stuff that the world has to give you, the status, the money, the prestige, the social group. And you get to a point where you're like, I don't want it. I want him. Jesus has chosen you out of the world. You can lose everything, and you still have everything you ever wanted. Friends, do you know this Jesus, who was put on a wooden cross by the world to conquer the world? Conquer the world in wrath and in condemnation, or conquer the world in redeeming love. He says, I have told you these things that you might not fall away. I have told you these things that you may have peace. Take heart. I have conquered the world. Let's pray. Jesus, show us how beautiful and how good you are. Would we be people like King Edward that though we look like fools to the world because of what we have walked away from, what we are willing to lose, what we're willing to be deprived of, They see in us your supreme beauty and value and love and goodness and grace and mercy. And they begin to wonder what I began to wonder one day when I saw your people bear witness to your worth. Would they begin to wonder, could it be that he is God, that he is good, that he is my friend? We ask this in your name. Amen.